before you go any further, please make sure you have listened to part 2A of Unfound's coverage of the Colonial Parkway disappearances. Richard Keith Call and Cassandra Lee Haley were a 20-year-old and 18-year-old from Gloucester and Grafton, Virginia, respectively. They had a college class together. On April 9th, 1988, Keith and Sandra were on their first date. They went to a party in Newport News, then left sometime after midnight. Keith's car was found just hours later on the Colonial Parkway. They were never seen again. I'm Ed Densel, and this is part 2B, the final part of Unfound's coverage of the Colonial Parkway disappearances. Here are three questions to contemplate as you listen to the second half of Joyce and Chris's interview and my analysis for this part 2B. Number one, at the time in the late 1980s, at least in the moment, did the police and FBI make the smartest choices they could given the facts they knew? Number two, Should the families, both for the murders and the disappearances, have looked a little closer to home than it seems they did to find the killers? And number three, why does it seem law enforcement does not use disappearances that are solved to resolve the ones that are unsolved? Okay. Let's move on to this. And this is probably, of all of the facts regarding their disappearances, this is probably the most outrageous part. And I want, of course, want to give both of you, get both of you in on this conversation. I'm going to start with Chris though. How did you find out about the story about the park ranger and the clothes? And just to set this up for everybody, of course, your father comes by, sees the car, goes there, no clothes in it. But when you two show up, the story is that their clothes were in the car. Chris, how did you find out about this outrageous clothes story? Well, the clothes story, I actually didn't know until just a year or two ago. I, I don't remember hearing that the Park Service was the one that put the clothes in there. I always thought it was the people who committed, the people who killed them or abducted them. I always thought it was those people who came back. Then the thing was they had the gall to come back to the crime scene within an hour, 30 minutes, to put the clothes back in after my father had found the car. I always thought that for the longest time. I didn't know until recently that it was the Park Service. Wow. <laughs> how did you, uh, all right, so I got to ask, this is, I don't think uh, this is new to me. Uh, how did you find out it was the Park Rangers? I think I heard my sister or maybe someone else talking about it. And I wasn't, I didn't know that. Or maybe at one time I wasn't paying attention. Because for the longest time, we, I thought that the person, when we just spoke about, that they had the gall to come back to the scene of the crime and put the clothes back. Yeah. Wow. You believe that? Wow. For over 30 years, that's what you thought, man. That was amazing. I I apologize that that I was not aware of that until right now. Everybody's uh, listeners are saying you're just finding that out right now, Ed. Yes, I am. Okay. 
Uh, Joyce, is was that your impression for over 30 years as well? Oh, yeah. It was our impression for a long time. I don't know about over 30 years, but yes, because they tried to keep that from us. And uh, we always thought, we didn't know. We, we assumed that the people who abducted them, mm -hmm. you know, put their clothes back. And then... And then we were told that it was the park service who had put the clothes back. So actually, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what's really true. Okay. So then how, once again, I have to ask you this both for both of you, either one that wants to answer, maybe both. Um, how then did that get changed? Who was it that finally revealed to you that it was the park rangers who did this? How did you find that out? You're just kind of minding your own business, living your lives here in the 21st century, and it just popped up. How did it pop up? Was it the FBI, Joy? You know, I don't really, it might have been the FBI. I would have to go back through my notes to find out for sure if it was the FBI, because I was, um, I was pretty shocked, really, because I sure I had thought that the whole time, and um, and then to find that out that it was actually the Park Service, I was like, oh, okay. And, wow! So and the so, so the FBI is the one you think that finally revealed that to you, or did they? I, I once again, I realize this technical. So bit. I got did they this, call we you? Got did they email you? They or, didn't know. No, no, no. So no, they didn't actually tell. It was a tip from somebody. It was a tip from somebody, and that's why I don't even know if I what I actually believe. Because honestly, you would not believe to this day. Well, you probably would. Uh huh. How much? How many different emails and messengers and tips that we get? And some of them. I mean, most people are trying to help. Most people are, and some people. But I don't ever know what's true, and so I. And along with the other families, we kind of uh, are not kind of, we are all still connected and we do yeah. stay in touch, some of us more than others. And so sometimes some of the other family members will get tips and we'll put the tips together and we'll try to, you know, see what's going on. And we'll, if we think that they're valid, we'll send them over to the FBI, but we'll try to get as much information before we do send it over to the FBI. Because once we send it over to the FBI, you know what happens? We don't hear anything That's because right. they can't. Yeah. yeah. So we we could write probably books on how yeah. many different kind of, of tips and information that we get and still do. Okay. Chris, is are, is it your opinion? Once again, this is just uh, maybe for, you can speak for both of you. Is your opinion that the FBI covered up the fact that the park rangers messed with the crime scene? I don't know if they purposely, perhaps they purposely did, um, but we weren't aware of it. I, that, that much I can tell you. We were never, and that was a big deal because, um, you know, we thought for the longest time that uh, the people who who committed it were the ones who came back and to the crime scene. So we were we were led to believe that's what happened wow. up until a few years ago. I didn't any any insight on why so it was so it was. So it was a tip, but are you inclined to believe that the FBI, had, and we have to remember this is federal land, so the FBI is going to be involved. Um, are you inclined to believe that the FBI has known this since 1988? I'm sure they probably did, yes. 
Okay. Oh, yeah. Wow. All right. So for the listeners, and this came up with Terry, too, although I'm not sure that Terry, uh, maybe she, I guess she, are you your impression? I, this kind of did not come up with her this exact way. Do you think that she didn't find out till recently as well? That I don't know. I've no, I don't. Okay. So because... What I guess the listeners need to understand then is to go through this is that it seems that the car's sitting there, your father comes along, sees the car, no clothes inside. Then when everything starts getting started uh, like an hour or two later, you know, the alarm bells are going off. When they show back up and law enforcement shows up, the clothes are in there. And for all these years, you thought that sometime in there, Whoever caused their disappearances actually came back and put the clothes there. But now we seemingly know, you seemingly know, we know, the, the audience knows, is that the park rangers, it's some for some reason, had taken the clothes out of the car and yes. then brought them back and put them back in the car. Right? Yep. That's true. Right. Okay. All and right. that's so, can I just say right here, that pisses me off because they were what? so aware of what happened about a year and a half, two years and ago. And my dad went oh. to a grave thinking that, and my mother. <laughs> right, right. And so, right, your father's not with us. He did not uh, live to know that it was actually the park rangers that took the clothes out. Right. And Chris, you bring up a very good point. What are they doing? There was somebody, that, the two people were just murdered right down the street two years before that. What are they doing? It's almost like they panicked. <laughs> I don't know. I will just, we're not going to get into theorizing here, but it's going to be something certainly that the listeners can think about. Now, regarding the clothes, now we should know they are, despite no matter who put them back there, they are Sandra's and Keith's clothes. Nobody debates that. In addition, there's no DNA, no signs of violence on these clothes, at least that anybody knows. But the way you two understand it, and I'll start with you, Joyce. Um, was there anything missing of Keith's? Any clothes that you've heard about, like pants missing, shirt missing, anything missing? No, not that I know of. Okay. And for Chris, um, any jewelry? Uh, did he wear a watch? Did he wear a chain? Was the Keith that? type of guy were those things still there were they missing were they as what there as well I, what do you know i think he had a watch on it wasn't a jewelry kind of guy and um i think the watch was still there the watch was there it was okay so mm -hmm. i guess as i spoke with terry if the two of them did go up there uh let's just say to uh do what everybody does um there's no reason to take your watch off if you're going to be having sex in the car of course um, but like it's like we talked about before, maybe if somebody was staging this as them going skinning dipping in the York River, then you would take your watch off, right? Of course, yes. Right. Okay. Watches weren't as waterproof back then. Right. Okay. Let's move on to this. Just the interior of the car. I've heard about I've read about these beer cans going back to the beer that you got for Keith. Uh, were there beer cans in the car? How many of them were empty? And has the, the entire 12-pack ever been accounted for, Chris, being that you bought it for him? What do you know about the beer cans and the beer in general? Oh, I'm having cramps here. Um, ahead, I don't care. remember 
if they accounted for all of them. I do know there were some there opened in the back. Mm -hmm. um, that's really, really what I know. I don't think Keith was really much of a, uh, a drinking and driving kind of guy. Um, mm -hmm. He had a good head on his shoulders. Um, someone else could have opened them. Perhaps the people who did it could have sure. had a beer. Who knows, you know. Um, why not? It's cold. It's there. Um, that's what I know. Okay, so we got this 12-pack, and it seems that in the entire 12-pack has not been accounted for. We might have some empty beer cans. You're very white. Could have been staged. Could have been them. We don't know. But um, at least for those witnesses, nobody has ever come forward saying, well, you know what? I saw Keith and Sandra show up at the party, and Keith had that 12-pack with him. Have you ever heard anything like that? No, and, and as we're no. talking, I'm thinking. Okay. If he, if he uh, bought it for the party, why would it be in the car? Why would he have left it at the party? I, yeah. I I agree with you. And is it you're just to, to cover, make sure we're as as complete as possible? Do you know for a fact that the beer cans that were found empty in the car are the same type that you bought for Keith? I'm pretty sure they were. I'm 99.9 percent .9 sure. Yes. Okay. Very good, Joyce. Uh, the way you understand the car. The clothes, everything else. Any signs of violence in the car? For example, any broken mirrors, any slashed seats, anything like that? No, nothing like that. Um, the pictures I saw, some of the pictures I saw was mm -hmm. the driver's side seat was tilted forward mm -hmm. and it was pushed up as far as you could push it up. And Keith was six feet tall, at least. And so he would have not had it pushed up that far if he was driving. But it was it was pushed forward. It was a two-door, so that someone, whoever's in the back, had to. And there was a beer can sitting in the back seat on the floorboard. Okay. And some clothes, jacket or something like that. Okay. Going back to something that your father encountered, did he, uh, Joyce, uh, again for you, um, did he say that the door was open or a window was down? Did he say something like that, you know, in his testimony regarding what he saw? What, what can you say about that, Joyce? I think it was the door was cracked open. The dome light was on. Okay. Okay. So the car's just not sitting there. Whoever left it there didn't even bother to close the, close the car up. Right. Okay. All right. And, but we have to remember, unfortunately, your father got there at the point that the clothes had already been taken out of it. So I guess it's possible that the park rangers took those clothes and they were the ones who didn't shut the door. Unfortunately, this is how this all gets so messed up, right? Yeah, the clothes weren't in there when my dad drove by. But when the park rangers are the ones that called my mom, they were in there when they called my mom, like yeah. later on that right. morning. Right. So... We're not sure who didn't completely close that door is, I guess, what we're saying. And yeah. I just have to ask you this, being that we are all adults here, any condoms, any sexual things in the car that could lead us to believe that actually Keith and Sandra went up there for that, that you've ever heard about? Not that I'm aware of. Joyce? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. No, 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 no story like that. Okay. All right, now we come, uh, Joyce can relax again because I want to talk to Chris. The, um, you know, the other uh, very coincidental part about all this, not just with your father, but Chris, you have your own personal story about 
very early on on April 10th, you're coming back from somewhere. You have an encounter with with Keith's car. We believe it to be Keith's car. Why don't you tell your story? You're coming back from somewhere with a friend. This right. is your story. So why don't you just tell it right now? Well, I was coming back from Richmond um, with my friend Ethan and um, got off the interstate there at the Colonial Parkway exit and coming around on the Colonial Parkway um, about 2, I don't know, 3.30, maybe 4 in the morning. It was a very late night, uh, early morning. And anyway, I do remember as we passed the Greenfield picnic area, um, a vehicle pulled out of the picnic area and accelerated quickly. The speed limit on the parkway is only 45 miles an hour because it's the one and only place in my life that I ever got a speeding ticket, so I know it's 45. I'll remark because obviously at four in the morning, there's no other traffic on the parkway. There's no lights. The vehicle speeded up quickly um, as we passed the wayside area where a car was sitting and come to find out a few hours later, that's where Keith Scar was found. Um, when, we, when we passed that area, that dark vehicle, and I think it was a, a dark blue or black van, um, after we passed that area, it um, did a UE and went back the other direction. I turned around and went back northbound. We were kind of going southbound. So, and I do remember seeing a car parked um, where Keith's car was found just a couple hours later. Um, and I do remember seeing a light on, not a headlight, but either perhaps a trunk light or a dome light. Mm -hmm. I do remember seeing that. I remember marking. And I remember joking with my friend Ethan saying, you know, I know what they're doing because it was a lover's lane situation. And that's mm -hmm. what people did back then. You know, everyone went mm -hmm. on there. Okay. So you absolutely 100% believe that that was Keith's car. I do. Yes. Okay. And the dome, you said the dome light was on. Something, it was a, just a little faint light. It wasn't mm -hmm. a bright light, but because right. it's pitch dark on the parkway, so any light you're going to see. And I think it was rather cloudy that night too. Okay. This, uh, this, uh, the picnic area. So you're coming from the North, you're going South. Is this picnic area, did it pull out from the East side of the street or the West side of the street? Well, it was coming from the picnic area and that would have been, I guess, it's hard to say, but it's, it, the picnic area is on the York River. So okay. coming from the river, making a left and going south. On oh, the south. And that's okay. a very, very, very wooded area right there. You mm -hmm. can hide in there easily in a vehicle. So, Okay, so it comes flying up behind you. Uh, were you driving or was your friend driving? My friend Ethan was driving his car. Okay, so you're in the car. This truck comes flying up behind you, some sort of van or something. And when you say van, of course, this is the 1980s. Do you mean like a, you know, minivans uh, became a thing in the 1980s? Or are you thinking more like a cargo van type of? No, like a GMC van or something, or a Ford van, one of those. And for some right. reason, I think GMC pops into my mind. Vans back then had distinguished slopes, you know. Yeah. People look at a car, you know, it was a GMC or a mm -hmm. Ford or Chevy or whatever. So. Right. Or Dodge. Right. So it was more like uh, a van that somebody might use for like a business. Like or a, a lot of people use vans. They drove around in vans, camped in vans, hippie right. vans, you know. Okay. So a bigger van, not like what we like a Chrysler minivan. No, not like a Chrysler minivan. Like Chrysler. Okay. Thank you. All right. So it comes up behind you and maybe you might have thought that it was going to pass you or something. Instead, 
uh, it makes a U-turn. And how far would you say this U-turn was south of where Keith's car was actually found? A hundred yards, a quarter mile? What you that was? I don't remember. I think it was the next parking area. Uh, and I think that would have been the Naval Weapons one. I'm not sure. But you can yes. just kind of turn there and just make a left in there and come right back out and go the other direction. And it's okay. on the same side. It's all on the old river side. Okay. Um, what were you thinking at the, t at the time? Were you thinking that uh, could this have been a van connected to the park rangers? Somebody I just drinking and driving, just acting stupid? I know, but, it, but it, I thought it was very strange because it, that late at night, why was a van accelerating so quickly behind us? Mm -hmm. um, why did it turn around? It really sparked interest in me. I really thought, that's really weird. Why did it do that? Why did it accelerate so fast and turn around and went the other direction? That, I thought it was very strange. So did my friend. Yeah. Even. Creepy, matter of fact, I thought it was creepy. It certainly does sound strange, especially now that we know that uh, Keith and Sandra went missing and the car was found right there. But just to be clear, though, you never did see that van actually in the pull-off area where Keith's car was, just to be clear. No, I didn't. No. Okay. Um when you ended up finding out where Keith's car was, did you end up telling the FBI or any other law enforcement your story? And did they ever try, what did they say about it? Uh, did they ever try to track this van down? What what happened? Well, I remember that morning um, trying to talk to one of the FBI agents and telling him the story because I thought it was very important. And I, I think Terry Haley was, one of the Haley sisters was with me at the time. And I remember trying to tell it to him. and. It's like he could have cared less. His 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 eyes were bloodshot. I mm -hmm. he looked like he had been high. I'm just saying, or he yeah. been up on, and he had really zero interest. And I'm like, hey, listen, this is what happened, mm -hmm. you know, yada yada yada. And he's like, could have cared. Wasn't writing anything down. I didn't remember saying you're not writing this down or something. Because yeah, I you know I remember well. I thought it was very important. My brother's now missing. There was a van just a few hours ago. Yeah, very strange. Never forgot it. Got a weird feeling in my gut, my stomach, and I never forgot that. Of course, uh, when you found out that your father encountered Keith's car and then you had your own story, uh, you know, that must have been a very, of course, on. I, I realized at the time, very worried. Of course, to this day, you're very still worried about your brother, uh, Keith. But when you finally spoke to your father about he had a story, you had a story, what kind of uh, interaction... You had a, your own story. What kind of interaction did you have between the two of you sharing your stories? I just really, I'm sure it was very emotional, but it was, I do remember it's just what, when we kept saying, what coincidences are these? I mean, so strange. What big coincidence, you know? Right. Very huge coincidences. Very, very strange. Right. Okay. And so this is how, to this day, we can now narrow this time down that, some that car was there. Um, three thirty. You said you were went going through there through three thirty four in the morning, and so the car was already there by that time. And this is what makes this so difficult because we don't really know when they left that party. Of course, if we're to believe one witness, she says it was at Keith and Sandra were at this party at least two fifteen. Well, then. An hour and 15 minutes later, the car is already up on the Colonial Parkway. Uh, Joyce, the way you understand it, how long does it take to drive from like Christopher Newport University to that spot approximately where, where the, the Keys Parkway? Car yeah. I would, I would 
probably about 25 minutes. All right. So 25, 25 minutes, minutes, a half hour. So, you know, this timeline starts to get really, really tight. If they stay there till 2.15, um, Chris is seeing the car maybe 3.30 to 4 a.m. I mean, that's not a lot of time. Nope. That's very, very narrow part of time. And uh, for both of you, given Chris, you, you had this story and you heard, you saw this van pull out of this picnic area north. Do you know if any searches, did that lead anybody to go up there and like look around at that area? Do you, you know anything about that, Chris? They, they probably did. Um, they probably did. But I don't mm. remember that because I will tell you that even though I do remember a lot of this stuff, I think it also was very emotional at the time when it started hitting you that your brothers, we just thought he was missing. But, you know, there was, us. I remember seeing a lot of emotion with my mother, especially, and it started to end with me too. But um, so probably emotion was involved in a lot of it too. So mm. are starting to, when you're realizing, oh, this is not a good thing. Right. Okay. So we have all of this. We have the car up there. We have this closed story, the park ranger story, uh, which it, it still amazes me. She did not find out about this until recently. This is something that I found out right during the course of this interview, despite all the conversations we had. Somehow I missed that. That's my fault. Uh, we have the, your father's story. Chris, we have your story. Uh, you know, we've covered a, a lot of ground here. How quickly, in your both of your opinions, and Joyce, we'll start with you, how soon did it seem to you that investigators started trying to put Keith and uh, Keith and Cassandra's disappearances with the murders that happened, you know, in 86 and 87? Was this something that happened very quickly? Or because I think, as you all know now, here in the 21st century, they're all seen as one group. But when did you start to realize that that was happening, Joyce? Uh, very quickly, actually. Yeah, yeah, it did. Probably, uh, I don't, I don't know an exact timeline, but I can't remember really when they didn't. Mm -hmm. From from probably from the very beginning, mm -hmm. they started associating our case, especially with Kathy and Becky, because it was yeah. on the Parkway as well. And uh, so, so I've always gone back and forth, you know, depending on what kind of evidence or what I've learned new that particular year as to what I believe because it changes. Mm -hmm. What about you, Crystal? How do you remember it? I think pretty early on they were connecting all of them together. Mm -hmm. Plus other murders. There were, there were a lot of murders going on in the area at that there time. A lot. Mm -hmm. There were, and uh, yes, and there's there are the what we would call the two disappearances and the six other murders, and then there are some other ones that some people have tried to bring into all of this, and that's something I'm going to be talking about in my own commentary after these interviews play. It's going to be a lot longer commentary than I usually do for an episode, but there's a lot to cover, just some of the work that I've done. Um, well, uh, and so I'm, I'll continue with this with you, Chris. Um, was that your opinion too? Was that your family's opinion at the time that Keith and Cassandra's disappearances should be connected to the prior murders? We'll get to the one that happened after, but to the prior ones to you, I realize you are not a seasoned investigator, but did it make sense to you or did it seem maybe different? Sometimes it made sense and other times it didn't make sense. So, yeah. 
sometimes you think, yeah, they're definitely related. And other times you think, well, no, nope, I don't think they are really that related. The car was just planted there. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. What about you, Joyce? Yeah, like I was saying earlier, it, it, it has changed so many times. Um, like when it happened, just like you said, none of us were had any experience with anything like this. It was only happened to other people. It was only on the news, you know. And so in the very beginning, I naturally, I just went with whatever law enforcement told me because they are supposed to be the ones that are helping us, you know. And I had that outlook at first. And I believed what they told me. Well, you know, as time went on, my views changed. And I don't necessarily, I think the car was planted there today. I don't think they drove that car there for one yeah. minute. Right. Have you, either of you, and I asked Terry, uh, Sandra's sister, the same question. Have any of you ever been presented with any scientific evidence that any of them are connected? Not just your disappearances, the ones that have affected your lives, but any of them. Has any scientific information ever been connected to other any of them, or is this just a geography thing? Joyce, I don't have any science. No, they have not. No. Okay. And Chris, no, not that I'm aware of that. There's been any scientific evidence because there were no bodies. So, if they have it, they won't tell us anyway. Right. Right. And I guess that's possible considering you didn't know about the park ranger story with the clothes until recently, then I guess who knows what else could be uh, behind the scenes. And this is what makes covering uh, all of this, uh, you know, difficult. All we can do is go with the public information and uh, of course, family members or friends uh, experiences, of course. Okay. Um, maybe I'll ask you this over the years, have because this does this does happen even with murders that are unsolved have they ever thrown out law enforcement any names to you regarding any possibilities for any of these murders the disappearances anything they Chris. haven't thrown it or joyce go ahead please joyce okay. please. they haven't thrown out names per se they what they tell us is they have a list of suspects mm -hmm. and uh the list is buried, you know, and, yeah. you know, they tell us that they have a list and they started out with 150 suspects, 150. I don't know what they've narrowed it down to now. I know that they are focusing on a smaller, uh, not 150 now, but uh, they they won't tell us a lot. And, and some of the reasons I do understand, but I still get very frustrated. And some of them, I just think they should just, you know, it's been 32 years now. They need to just get over it and tell us something. You know, but that's just a human emotion. Sure. Chris, your impressions on this. Uh, have they ever, behind the scenes, uh, given you any people that they were looking at, uh, either for Keith and Sandra's disappearances or for any of the murders? Anybody? Um, you know, just the... Um... <clears throat> What was the, the Fred guy and uh, maybe a couple of other people that were always in the news, but, but no, they really weren't like giving us out names or anything. No. And of course we have, and I brought this uh, guy up to uh, Terry, but that Liberty securities guy. Who, Bob, I don't, yeah. yeah. That, that guy who um, 
was not even an American citizen. I think they shipped him back to New Zealand, but, and I'm going to talk about him afterwards, my impressions of what has been made of that, but some um, unique connections maybe he has to some of these murdered people. Uh, I, I'm going to talk about that a little bit. But have uh, either of you over the years ever had an in-depth conversation with law enforcement about him? I well, haven't. we've had conversations about him before because he's always been a hot a, a suspect in my mind. Okay. In my mind. So, and because, and I think that, well, not I think, I know the reason that I say that is because, you know, living around here all our lives and you know, and so knowing so many people around here, it's probably based on stories of other people that know him personally. You know, I know a lot of people that know him personally, and I don't know if they're embellishing or not. Right. But I know, um, I know a lot about him. Let's put it that way. Okay. So I don't know that he did have anything to do with Keith or Cassandra's murder, but I know that he is not a good person. Well, that's that's true. Uh, Chris, uh, any conversation you've ever had with law enforcement about him? Not that I'm recollecting, no. Okay. But you know, um, I live in South Florida and Joy was more active for many years up there, so she okay. would have more it, so. Right. Uh, yes, Chris is a fellow uh, Florida resident uh, with me, and but he is on the uh, other other side of the state. Okay, um, I just have to ask you this, and because this is going to come up in some of my commentary, but if you can <clears throat> remember, what kind of vehicle, Chris, as we've stated, Keith got this car as a graduation present the year before. What kind of vehicle was he driving before that? Uh, Chris, can you remember? I think it was a Subaru Brat because it was mine. And I think I gave it to him or he maybe gave me a couple hundred. I don't know. I remember, but it was mine. I okay. So it. Subaru Brat, one of those kind of like a pickup looking vehicles, right? Yes. I, do, I think I was driving it and I hit it. I hit a deer and I think I ended up really almost totally in it. So I think that's another reason why he got a new vehicle. Um, deer are really bad, very rural area, a lot of deer. And it's pretty common. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to remember that. That's going to be important for my commentary because of this letter that this Liberty Securities guy, guy wrote. And there's something about it. I'm not going to read that letter is huge, but there's a certain part of it that I want to illustrate. I want to show to the listeners and viewers uh, that did catch my eye. Okay, how did uh, your family react? We'll go to you, uh, Joyce. Um, of course, there is a two murders that happened in 1989 that are considered to be part of the Colonial Parkway um, incidents and murders, crimes. How did you react when you heard about them? Do you remember? Um, yeah, I do remember. And it was, um, it was, I was shocked. I was very shocked. It was like, oh, not again, not again. Um, so, and, and again, it was on the, on the local news a lot. So it was kind of hard to hide from it. Okay. And Chris, do you remember uh, where you were? And did you automatically think that those murders all these years later might be connected to Keith and, and Sandra's disappearances? What'd you think? Remember? I still think they could be, and I still think they couldn't be. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really think that they were, planted there to make it look like they were connected you know right. 
Okay. Let's move on. Um, these are once again some questions that I asked to Terry, just changing the name from uh, Sandra to Keith. We will start here, and uh, we are getting near the end of this uh, interview. I, I know it's I know how we've talked about the car being planted, but I just have to ask. And Chris, we'll start with you. Can you think of any reason that Keith and Sandra would have gone to that spot by choice, realistically? What your impressions? I mean, it was a lover's lane, but I, um, the fact that she had to be home at a certain time, that was really out of the way. So I really don't think it would have been realistic for him to be on the Colonial Parkway because he'd have to, he literally was, he was close to home, much closer, would have to go all the way back south to take her somewhere. Yeah, it does seem like to go uh, way out of the way to do something like that if they wanted to do that. Surely there are places near the Newport News area if they wanted a little privacy, right? Okay. Joyce, next question for you. Were the park rangers, and I know both of you, and I'm just kind of stayed away from that for this interview, but we'll give it, we'll, we can talk about it now, I suppose. Were the park rangers ever investigated due to their tampering? I, tampering. I realize you're just finding out what they did recently, <clears throat> but my understanding, Joyce, is your family has been kind of suspicious of at least one park ranger since day one. Uh, do you know if that person or people were ever investigated, could they have something to do with these disappearances? Do you know anything about that, Joyce? Well, I've been told that, that some of these park rangers have been looked into. I do not know how in depth mm -hmm. that they have been looked into, but I know that some of them have. And I don't know if it's the one that Chris was talking about in particular, yeah. because there have been several mentioned before that were connected with other cases as well. Mm -hmm. that people disappeared or died. Right. And the listeners should know that I have looked this uh, particular park ranger up because um, we know his name. We're not going to get into that, but I, he is, I do not believe he is alive now, but he did his time uh, as a park ranger and then he ended up getting into real estate of all things. But um, yeah, I looked him up, did not have anything that jumped out on his criminal record uh, at all, but a lot of times that doesn't mean anything, but I have uh, had a chance being that you remembered his name to look him up. Uh, just, I asked you this question before. I'll ask you again, just to make sure. Other than beer, have you ever heard about anything? Of course, beer is not illegal, but uh, anything like LSD, ecstasy, anything like that ever being at this party at the Christopher Newport campus? Chris? Nope. Never, never heard. No. Okay. Next question, uh, we've, and uh, once again, just pointed questions. I realize that we've covered these kind of glancingly over the past almost two hours, but I'll ask you, Joyce, do you believe that Keith and Sandra's disappearances are connected in any way to the unsolved murders? Any of them? I don't know. Don't know. Okay. I'm open. I mean, but I don't know. And, and Chris, I'll, I, I realize you've uh, said, already said stated this before in the interview but i'll give you a chance to answer again what do you think about that question i also don't know i kind of want it i want them to be connected just because of we're part of it's almost like a family in a sense yeah. but not sure okay uh chris for you and i'll give uh i'll give joyce a chance to this question as well in general chris has law enforcement given you an idea if they think 
the disappearances are connected to the unsolved murders. What do you think they're thinking uh, 34 years later? Any idea, Chris? Well, I don't know about 34 years later, but they, for the longest time, they were all, they were connecting all of them. So yes, mm -hmm. yes. Okay. And Joyce, is that your impression as well? Yes. I still speak with our agent on a regular basis and um, she still definitely believes that they are connected. Okay. Is this, uh, this, her name came up in the other interview with Terry. Uh, this is Liz you're talking about. No, her name is, well, uh, yes, yes, yes. Liz. Okay. We, we're not, I'm, I'm sure you know her last name. We're not getting into that, but her first name is Liz. That's who you're talking about. Right. Okay. Very good. How has, um, of course we've already stated, uh, your, is your mother still alive? No. She's, she's deceased as well. Okay. So both of your parents, um left this earth of course not knowing a lot of these things like like we stated recently you know stated just found out recently that these clothes had been paid placed there part by a park ranger but how what has been the lasting effect of keith's disappearance uh, on your family uh chris you can go first what's the lasting impression lasting effect lasting effect well i that's hard to say. I mean, I, uh, I think maybe we're more guarded, um, made us closer. Um, it also totally changed our family dynamics when all of that happened too. But overall, I think we're more guarded people and, um, mm -hmm. maybe more aware of things going on around. Mm -hmm. Right. And what about you, Joyce? Uh, how did this, uh, your impressions on how it affected, um, for example, your parents, being that they aren't here to speak for themselves, uh, maybe you can speak for them, Joyce. You know, how did this affect them? Uh, Keith's disappearance oh. and, you know. Devastation is a word. Yeah, devastated. It it did. Um, it, was, it was a worst nightmare, something you never want to live through. And as one of my other brother, Doug, explains it, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, he said it was, you know, it was just as bad watching my mother and my father, and especially my poor mother, just go through this torture and hell of not knowing where their son is. And so we're watching this along with going through the actual, um, you know, experience ourselves. And so it was, it was it's horrible. And um, I mean, it has brought us closer together as a family. It did. Chris is right about that. And our whole lives were forever changed. I mean, our life was, uh, at least I'll speak for me today, my life, when I speak about my life, it's like before this happened and after this happened, before Keith, after Keith. Uh, so it it forever changed our family, you know, it did. And um, I don't know, you just... I. It's hard to put into words, especially in, in any murder is devastating. But when you cannot find body, the bodies, you know, yeah. it's just hard. So. Yeah. And uh, Joyce, uh, as both of you know, I've uh, looked up, I've read several, several, several articles on newspapers.com about the coverage, not just of these disappearances, but of the murders, the 86, 87. 
89, all the ones, once again, that are considered to be the Colonial Park murders, if you were to go, for example, to the Wikipedia page on all of this. And I, I you know, it's weird. Here we are in 2022. But Joyce, I remember seeing a picture of you in one of those first articles. You're, you're posting a flyer somewhere. You're right prominent. And, and Chris, is that you in the background or maybe one of your other brothers or somebody in the background? Probably. Could have been me. A good chance it was me because I was definitely living. I was there at the time. Yeah, I Joyce. I remember there's a picture of you. One of the first articles. You're right, right. there posting a flyer somewhere, and yeah. you know, and that was 34 years ago. Yeah, uh, I should ask you this: being talking about your family, and we had talked about this right before this interview started. In fact, one of your brothers was actually interrogated, interviewed by police. Is that correct? Maybe, Chris, you want to talk about that? Is that true? One of your brothers got pulled in and was actually kind of given a hard time by police. Am I imagining that, or did you tell me that at one point? Okay, what it was, I can kind of laugh. So that was like when they found my brother Doug, he, uh, mm -hmm. fingerprints. And then we had a meeting years it's probably about 10 years ago now where we had a meeting all the families together with the the fbi and they swabbed they flew all the families in the families that weren't here and we had a big meeting and um so they swabbed some of us too so you know because of the dna and how it's they can do a lot different with it now anyway they um they ran some of the dna to try to get matches and they came up with um fingerprints of Doug, my brother, fingerprints on Keith's car, which is perfectly natural because yep. he lived at home too. Yeah. But what it was is they weren't sure it was Doug's at first. I think my Doug, uh, Doug had gotten in trouble when he was younger. He got a, um, he got a drunk in public or a DUI or something. Huh. Okay. And so they had his fingerprints and they somehow connected them with, um, the fingerprints on my brother Keith's car come to find right. out he was Doug. And we were like, well, why didn't you do that years ago? It was just like, we were kind of aggravated. It's like, you should have, you should have known his fingerprints were on there years ago. They kind of, anyway, it was something stupid. All <laughs> right. So, and, and this is important because I guess then we are to believe that whoever staged the car there did not wipe the car down. Being that they got not. Doug's finger, fingerprints off of it, they must have got Sandra's fingerprints off of it. And also Keith's fingerprints off of the car because they, of course, were in the car as well. So whoever did this didn't even bother to wipe the car down before ditching it there. Is that how you look at it, Chris? Yeah, they did a really poor job. It was, uh, you know, back in the day, they, they, uh, they it was a really, they didn't do a good job at all. Mm -hmm. It was pretty bad. <laughs> Have you, uh, have either of you ever heard of them ever interviewing anybody else whose fingerprints were found in the car? No, I have not. You, how about you, Joyce? Um, I know that they have interviewed people and they are going, and they are still today, I think they are re going through some of the old evidence that they have. And they have interviewed people, but they don't tell me who. Okay. Let me ask you this, and we're very close to the end of this interview. Just to finish this up, being that this was a topic with uh, Sandra's sister, Terry. 
at one point at what point did you find out that sandra's ex-boyfriend terry kirby was at the party when did you find that out um pretty early on yeah yeah it's pretty early on do you remember if it was terry who told you somebody in her family was it the police was it somebody else do you any any ideas whatsoever i don't remember how i exactly found out right now but i, re I remember that we knew virtually from the beginning i think i mean very early on i don't know how soon it was that it started clicking in our minds that you know that he came up as a, a possible suspect mm -hmm. okay but, um, and we're not once we just started processing things because sometimes you know at least for me, speaking for myself, you know, the shock had just set in at first and it took, takes me a while to like start processing the information that's been fed to me, you know? Yeah. That's, yeah. Okay. So you did find out about that. And as I stated in the interview with uh, Sandra's sister, Terry, I have to keep verifying, you know, distinguishing who or identifying who I'm talking about. We have two Terry's here, but Terry, Sandra's sister, as I spoke with her in that interview, we just want to make clear, as far as the police are concerned, this is published in multiple places, that Terry Kirby uh, has been cleared in all of this, at least as far as the police can, are concerned. But I just wanted to ask you that, how soon you found out about that, because, you know, if the police or whoever is not going to tell you those clothes weren't placed there by the, you know, the right people uh, for all these years, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't taking that for granted as well. So you've known about that for a while. Okay. okay. Any words, uh, any final words before we complete this interview, Chris? Um, we've covered everything. Um, I'm grateful for you taking the time to do this. You're very welcome. Um, and um, that's it. Thank you. You're welcome. And Joyce, any final words before we complete this interview? Again, yeah, I'm just thankful for you covering the case and keeping it out there. And and if anybody happens to see this video and have any, you know, leads or have heard anything, please reach out. And just so you both know, the way I handle this, if anybody does contact me, this is the way I've handled it since day one, since over six years ago. If I ever get any information about disappearance, what I do is I just pass the information on to the guest. I do not go directly to law enforcement. If I get emailed or, or whatever message something about that I think is credible, I pass it along to the guest. We talk about it, then they can decide what to do with it. So if I get anything, I will pass it along to both of you. We could talk about it, then you can decide what you want to do with it. That's how I handle it, this. All right. Thank any you. Information. Thanks. Okay. You're very welcome. And I appreciate both of you being on this episode of Unfound. Thank you. Thank you. Very welcome. And those are the second halves of the interviews I did between December 6th and December 9th, 2022, with some of the siblings of Keith Call and Sandra Haley, Terry, Joyce, and Chris. I thank them all for appearing on both audio and video for both parts one and two. I've produced a part two map video that can now be found on YouTube. 
I go through all the locations for all the murders and, of course, Keith and Sandra's disappearances. The video also contains some commentary and some criticism. Please check it out on Unfound's channel. From now to the end of the episode, I'm just going to be reading from my notes, and of course they are extensive. I'm not going to be reading from a script. So if you hear any ums and errs and you knows, you'll know why. I'm going to start by going through the two what I would call general theories that seem to me the most popular since all of this happened. I guess you could say it. this killing spree ended in 1989. I'm going to go through the two main theories that have gotten the most attention over the past 30 plus years. And, we'll, and then also why I think they popped up and what led police and the public, a lot of people who have been following these murders and disappearances, the two disappearances, why they've become so popular and why people still consider them to this day. Then I'm going to talk about some of the suspects that have been mentioned by name. And when I say suspects, people who have been considered to possibly be attached to all of the murders or a significant number of them and why that is. And I'm going to give you the reasons that they've been um, looked at or suspected, but I'm also going to give you my opinion on maybe some problems with each of these people. But I don't want you to think this is a overall complete list. Uh, but these are three prominent names that continue to come up over and over and over. Of course, before we're all done here, before this episode ends, I'm going to give you my opinion not just on Sandra and uh, Keith's disappearances, but I'm going to give you opinions on the murders as well. But I'm going to give the two main theories then the suspects who have gotten mentioned over and over and over over the years and have gotten a lot of attention. Then I'm going to talk about the work that I've done since August on Keith and Sandra's disappearances, um, looking at unfound cases that are similar. I'm going to talk to you about how many staging, episodes, uh, staging disappearances we've covered on unfound, and the number is higher than I thought. I'm going to show you all of my process regarding all of this. I'm going to talk also about how I got a particular listener involved in, in all of this as well. And yes, I'm going to answer that question that I asked all of you in part one. I remember I gave you that list of those people who uh, their cars were found near bodies of water or they were last seen near bodies of water. You remember that now? And I said that Keith and Sandra are much different are different than all of them. I'm going to answer that question. Then I'm going to show you how I narrowed it down. I'm going to go through a lot of uh, disappearance theory. And in particular, I think that there is one fact that pretty much points. I don't know if it's necessarily been overlooked, but and it's something that just came to me recently, but... I'm going to put it all together, and then I, eventually I'm going to tell you what I think happened to Keith and Sandra.
I'm going to comment on the murders as well as we go. Let's get started. The two main theories, and when I say the two main theories, I'm not sure if Brian and Laurie can be included in them. I think probably uh, before the interviews played, you already know uh, what my beliefs are regarding the, the the murders of Brian and Laurie. With Brian, I think he was murdered by Wayne Mack, who he left that party with. And with Laurie... I, I, there's not much doubt in my mind that her boyfriend who allegedly dumped her off because they got in an argument, there's not much doubt in my mind that he killed her. And Laurie's is very much like a lot of disappearances that we've covered. It's a, the man said type of disappearance. Oh yeah, we got in an argument at home. She stormed off. I never saw her again. Well, and the only difference here is that they were in a car and that she ended up being found murdered, stabbed in the back. And as I stated before the interview started, the odds that she got dumped off and started walking down the road, then some other person came along and, and stabbed her in the back and killed her. The odds of that happening are like Powerball and Mega Million odds. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but you get the idea. So when I say two main theories, what I'm doing, I'm talking about what we might call the duo. I don't know if we want to call them couples, but the the duos who were murdered or who went missing. That's who I'm talking about. Uh, Kathleen and Rebecca in 1986, David and Robin in 1987, Keith and Sandra going missing in 1988, and then the murders of Daniel and Anna Maria in 1989. So I just want to be clear regarding that. So when we talk about these theories, these are theories for these four duos, three of couples who were murdered, and then the one duo who is that are still missing. The first theory is that it was all basically done by one person or group. I don't think anybody's maybe surprised by that because there's a Wikipedia page, it's called The Colonial Parkway Murders, and I think that there's an inference in there that all of this was done by one person or one group. And mainly the idea has been a rogue cop or fake cop, corrupt police officer, someone like that. I suppose we might think not just local police officer, but maybe a, a sheriff's deputy or a sheriff or dare I say at Park Rangers, somebody in a law enforcement capacity. And I'll get into why that was, why I think that became the most popular idea about suspects um, before the 1980s were even over. The second theory is they're separate crimes, but you're still open, we're still open to the idea that Maybe a couple of them are connected. Connected. So one stands off by its own, but the other three are all connected by the same suspects, or two of them are by the same suspects, and the two others stand alone. Some combination of that, but surely not all four are done by the same person or people. What's most important here, though, is that still this idea of a rogue cop, a corrupt cop, a corrupt sheriff's deputy, a corrupt park ranger, that still permeates this theory as well. It's just kind of split up. So we might have two 
corrupt police officers or fake police officers doing these things, not just one. Or maybe it could be a a fake police officer for a couple of them, and then the other two are people who weren't pretending to be anything. They're just killers, like serial killer or something. My best insight, uh, and you should know, uh, looking at both of those theories, that the impression I get as a person who came into this in 2022 is that it's pretty split. You can go to different blogs. You can listen to the show that Kathleen Thomas's brother Bill does on YouTube, and he's interviewed people, and FBI agents are split, police officers are split, trying to figure out, are these all connected, are these not all connected? And uh, I've even read some places where people from year to year who have really gotten into this over the past 30 years, it varies from year to year. One year they think that they're all connected somehow, and then the next year the person changes his or her mind. But why are these the theories? What, why did it come to be that they were viewed as being all connected? And where did this idea of some corrupt law enforcement official start? Well, I'm going to go through some of the, the reasons that that happened. One of the reasons is that cars were involved in all of these. Cars are involved in, of course, Keith and Sandra's disappearances and cars are involved in all of the other murders. So there's the thinking, did a police officer or a fake police officer pull up behind um, these people and something happened? And, and we know that fake police, police officers, there's people, mainly men, pretending to be police officers who are pulling over people all the time. That, that is a thing. Maybe we just know more about it now in the 21st century because of the internet and everything, but it certainly goes on, but I'm gonna, I'll come back to that. So one of the reasons is because cars were involved in all of them. Another reason was the windows on the driver's side in some of these vehicles that were rolled down at least a few inches. This led investigators to think, well, they rolled the window down a couple inches because a police officer had walked up and that's what you do. That was an idea. Of course, cracked windows, uh, for example, David Nobling's truck. That's an example. Another comment that was made, it's in the book, and I think this might have even come out in the show that Bill Thomas once again hosts on YouTube, is that the impression that investigators got at the time that all of these victims were overtly compliant, that they seemed to um, go along with 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 whoever was about to kill them, and and what I think, th- although there is signs, for example, that Kathleen Thomas tried to fight her killer. She had uh, a handful of hair. Um, on her when she was found deceased. But that was just a comment that investigators made that it does seem, you know, uh, David and and uh, Robin, it seemed like they were marched down to the water. Well, why would they do that? 
Um, we know it seems that Rebecca and Kathleen were inside their car when this started. Why would they get out of their car? Why would they allow themselves to be tied up and all of this happen? Of course, Kathleen being United States Navy Academy graduate, um, more than can take care of herself. So this started to make investigators think, well, what kind of people do the public usually comply with? Law enforcement officials. Then we can even look at Keith and Sandra's disappearances. We know, even though we know this crazy story about the park rangers with the clothes, nobody doubts those are are their clothes, uh, Sandra and Keith's clothes, and they have no signs of violence on all of them. So it seems if they were murdered, they took their clothes off by themselves. It goes back to this idea, well, why would somebody do this? Why would people be so compliant? Now, granted, there were a couple corrupt corrupt cops in the area, and I'm going to get into that in a little bit. So that certainly helped this idea, these theories as well. In addition, nobody has been caught. Uh, I don't know if they could have predicted in 1989, for example, that all of this would be unsolved in 2022, but these killings happened, these two disappearances happened, and nobody got caught in the early 90s, late 90s into the 2000s, and so it's, so it started... There was a thinking that started that maybe the reason this person or people haven't been caught is because they know law enforcement methods. Or maybe they have inside information on the investigation that is being done and they are able to avoid being um, identified. And also another reason was that, in, at least in some of these, going back to the vehicles and, and windows being cracked open, that at least in a couple of these cars, the wallets were out or the glove boxes were open as if they interpreted back at the time in the 1980s that, well, this is be something a driver would do if a person, a, a law enforcement officer, somebody was walking up to the car And what do you do? Most people keep their, at least their insurance information or registration in their uh, glove box. So you go over, you open that up. And so that was in investigators' minds as well. So I guess on the surface, thinking that this might be a fake police officer, rogue police officer, corrupt police officer, killer police officer, Deputy Park Ranger is not crazy when I list all of those points. But this is why it got started. So the reason we're talking about if you go to anywhere else and you read about these murders and these disappearances, you're going to hear about possibly this being the work of some sort of corrupt cop. All of these reasons is why that started. I don't think you can pick out any certain one of this these choices that I just went through here as being the, the number one. I think it was just a conglomeration of all of it together that pointed investigators. Ultimately, I'm not saying necessarily after the first murders, Kathleen and Rebecca's in 1986, but not too long after that, they got onto this path and it was a conglomeration of all of this. I think my best insight in 2022 as to what caused it. All of this put together. Let's now move on to some names that have popped up over the years. This is not a complete list. 
These are the what I would call the three prominent names that continue to bounce around. And you should know that, and these are names that are connected to all of these um, disappearances and murders. Whereas there are certainly names that have popped up for any one particular murder, whether it's Kathleen and, and, and Rebecca's or David and Robin's. But the three suspects I'm going to go uh, through right now are ones that have been, seemingly they've tried to connect to all four of these duos who went missing or who were murdered. So let's get started. Uh, Fred Atwell, he is a character. And in many ways, I have it right here in my notes. He reminds me so much of Steve Pankey. Now, of course, we know that Steve Pankey just got convicted uh, in October of 2022 for the murder of Janelle Matthews. However, you also know that uh, if you follow Unfound, uh, if you don't know who Steve Pankey is and you're maybe you're new to Unfound because we're covering the Colonial Parkway disappearances of Keith and Sandra, this is your first time, and you don't know who Steve Pankey and Janelle Matthews are, you probably should go back uh, and check all of that out. That would be helpful. But Fred Atwell was a guy who made himself known to law enforcement like Steve Pankey did. And uh, going back to Steve Pankey for a second, I think many of you have been know all about Steve Pankey and Janelle Matthews. You know that I have s- doubts that Steve killed Janelle. And certainly, I do not believe there was enough evidence to convict Steve of Janelle's murder, but that's what a jury did in October of 2022. Anyway, but Fred Atwell kind of um, thrust himself into all of this. He was a, what I would call an incompetent, petty criminal, scamster, but somehow uh, he ended up becoming a sheriff's deputy, if you can believe this, over in the Gloucester, Gloucester area of Virginia where Keith uh, and his family lived. This is well years and years later, years after the disappearances happened. But Fred Atwell has been brought up because in the early 2000s, he came across some information. He was the one who let everybody know that crime photos, very explicit crime photos from the murders of Kathleen and Rebecca had been were being used um, as teaching tools. And these, this evidence had been let out, I guess it's illegally, at least unethically. And he, Fred was the one who came upon this and let everybody know. So he kind of was seen as this kind of hero and everything. Well, then eventually he went back, just, he went back to his ways of scamming people. And I'm not going to get deep into it, but there was a car auction story that he, uh, put together raising money for these families, and then it turned out pretty much that it was fraud. But he reminds me a lot of Steve Pankey just because he would he would claim to know things about these disappearances and murders, but, it, but in the end, I don't think that he ever said anything that wasn't already known publicly. I think he just liked the attention, just I think like Steve Pankey did. So, but he has gotten a lot of attention. My impression is that the, the Keith and Sandra's families do not believe Fred had anything to do with any of this. And that, but law enforcement has, 
over the years have taken a long look at him. Now, the problem, of course, is that he is an incompetent criminal. Every crime that Fred Atwell ever committed in his life, he pretty much got caught doing it. And so I have to start thinking, well, how can, uh, if he's such an incompetent criminal, how could he have gotten away with any of these crimes? If he couldn't pull off a scamming uh, for a car auction, then how could he have gotten away with causing Keith and Sandra's disappearances? How could he have gotten away with murdering Kathleen or Rebecca? How could he get away with murdering David and Robin? I just do not think that Fred Atwell had the mental capacity. I think I think any human's capable of killing when pushed far enough, but then getting away with it and not leaving a ton of evidence behind. Fred Atwell seems like the type of person, if he wanted to kill somebody, uh, in doing so, he m- might mistakenly leave his driver's license behind at, th- at the scene of the crime. That's my impression of him. I think that's the impression a lot of people have of him. Still, he was looked at quite a bit regarding all this because he just would not let it go, like I said, going back to the Steve Pankey comparison. The next guy, uh, maybe a, a much better choice, maybe. His name is Ron Little, and you could do an entire hour podcast just on him alone, and I'm not going to do that. But he does have some curious connections to at least some of the victims. Not all of them, but at least a few of them. Are they coincidence? Could there be something to this? May, uh, uh, maybe a couple of them had worked for him, or they were like once removed, like that. the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. It was kind of like the one or two degrees of Ron Little. Some of these people, and in fact, I think even maybe Keith's mother might have known him. Something like that. So it's at least something to consider. And I'll just read uh, from the Colonial Parkway Murders.com site with just the general blurb about Ron Little. In 1989, Ron Little, co-owner of Liberty Security, later called Advanced Security, a Virginia-based firm, wrote a curious letter to a number of media outlets and elected leaders. In it, he appeared to out himself as a possible suspect in the unsolved Colonial Parkway murders, as well as the other open murder investigations in Virginia. That's not what I wrote. That's what wrote is written on the website. I don't, I've read the letter. It's long. I'm not going to read it here. Uh, this episode is going to be long anyway. Reading the letter might take a half hour. It's very long. But... Mm, the way I read it, I would not put it that he appeared to out himself. That is not the way I would put it. Once again, it, he kind of has that Steve Pankey feel to him that he just can't let things go. That he, it's almost like he enjoyed the attention of it, of being suspected. I would not say, though, that he outed himself. He did, he said nothing that um, was of course, criminal, or he did not reveal any information that wasn't known to the public, anything like that. He didn't show that any any secret knowledge at all of any of these murders or the disappearances. But he was a private investigator, and you should know that I think the one of the reasons that he also got attention, if you were to read this letter, even though there's some misspellings in it, that it's very well written. Uh, Ron Little is surely not a stupid guy. He is not Fred Atwell. 
And as a guy, me, Ed Denzel, who has been a writer for a long time, I've written millions and millions and millions of words, not just for Unfound, but books that I've written, I automatically can tell if a person can write or not. And Ron Little is a very good writer. Maybe he got somebody to professionally edit, professionally edit that letter, but it's very well written. So I think that he might have had the mental capacity uh, to get away with murder, thinking it all through, certainly. I don't know what his motives would have been in any of these, but certainly probably smart enough if he wanted to murder somebody to get away with it. And on top of it, he's writing this letter and thrusting himself into the middle of the investigation. But in unfound world, that is not rare. That's very common. People love to put themselves in the middle of missing persons investigations. Now, what is the problem with Ron Little, though? The problem I saw is in the letter itself. There is a, a sentence in here that I'm going to read to all of you, and we'll see if you can automatically pick up the problem. On April 9th, this is now Ron writing, um, I think it's on the page three of the letter. And it was all typed out, by the way. On April 9th, 1988, Keith Call, aged 20 years, and Cassandra Haley, aged 19 years, disappeared on the Colonial Parkway in York County. Keith's Keith Call's pickup truck was found with both his and Cassandra's clothing on the seat of the vehicle. Now, other than him getting Cassandra's age wrong, what is the other problem with that sentence? Did you pick it up right away? The problem is that Keith didn't have a pickup truck. In fact, his car, his vehicle was the opposite of a pickup truck. It was a, like, a, like a little sports car. So if, if Ron was involved in Keith and Cassandra's disappearances, do we really think he would forget the kind of vehicle that Keith drove? And you may say, well, the reason he did that, he didn't want to show he had any inside information. By the time he wrote this letter in 1989, the entire public knew what kind of car Keith had and the kind of car that was left on the Colonial Parkway. In this letter, Ron could have easily written, instead of Keith Call's pickup truck, but Keith Call's Celica, and nobody would have thought any different of it. Because it was already well known. It was already public information. It leads me to believe, certainly, that Ron Little had nothing to do with Keith and Cassandra's disappearances. At all. Not to mention, he also got Cassandra's age wrong, and that was of course, public knowledge at the time. In addition, despite him writing this great letter, he misspelled Keith's name. It was, of course, Keith is K-E-I-T-H. He wrote K-I-E-T-H. Now, the reason he might have gotten this wrong is because there might have been some sort of connection between Ron Little and Keith's mother. They might have known each other somehow, and the fact is, Keith at one time, before, as his siblings told me, before he owned or had the, the Celica, he had a Subaru Brat, which is kind of a pickup truck. It's not a Dodge Ram, but it is a little um, a Subaru Brat. They don't make them anymore, but it was a little, very little, tiny kind of um, pickup truck, smaller than, you know, remember the El Camino, uh, smaller than that. So it very well may be that Ron knew about Keith's disappearance 
and knew about Keith through Keith's mother, possibly. Maybe I'm getting that wrong, but it's at least possible that he thought, well, Keith's car was up there. Oh, it must have been that Subaru Brat that he had back whenever. This would then also rule out Ron Little as being responsible for Keith and Cassandra's disappearances. He gets the age wrong, he spells the name wrong, and then he doesn't even get the vehicle correct. Now, that doesn't, of course, rule him out for some of the other murders, but I really haven't taken a a deep look at that. I have my suspicions on the murders that I'll get to, but this letter... There's nothing in this letter that rules him out in the murders, but I think this letter, just this sentence alone, completely rules him out for the disappearances of Keith and Sandra. Then the last person, so we already have two people, by the way, you'll notice, connected to law enforcement. Um, Fred Atwell ended up becoming a sheriff's deputy despite his criminal record. We have Ron Little, who was a private investigator uh, doing security work around the time, kind of law enforcement, almost. And then the final one is Steve Blackman, who was a cop in the Gloucester area at the time. So this is where Keith and his family lived, grew up. And the reason he he is a good suspect is because some years later, he did end up killing two people. I think the year was 1996, so eight years after these disappearances. But he was a a police officer at the time over in Gloucester, not over in Newport News, where Christopher Newport College is, but over in Gloucester. And so he has been examined as being a possibility as well. So going back to that rogue cop, corrupt cop, killer cop theory, Steve Blackman certainly fits into this thinking as well. The problem with Steve Blackman is that, at least for these murders that he ended up committing, it was over drugs. It wasn't like he was going around shooting people randomly. He wasn't trying to be a a serial killer or anything, but the the murders he was eventually convicted for were concerning drugs. Some drug deal gone bad, and I think he was an addict, something like that. In addition, he was a police officer over in the Gloucester area, not in the Newport News area, so how, even if he was on duty that night, how did he encounter... Cassandra and Keith over in Newport News when Steve was over in the Gloucester area. It's hard to understand. It's hard. It's really uh, difficult to understand. So I think this, uh, this would rule him out for Cassandra and Keith's disappearances as well. Um, could he be involved in some of the other murders? It seems unlikely there, too, because uh, for Laurie and uh, some of these other people, they were found in the river, but they were found in the James River, which is even farther away from the Gloucester area. York River runs right by Gloucester. The James River is much further away from Gloucester. So what was Steve doing over in that area? It's hard to understand. But maybe. Uh, But those are the three names uh, that have come up. If you go to Blaine Pardot's book, which has been mentioned prominently in in both of these episodes now, you will find some other people have been named, but they were more specific to each murder, not to the overall idea that somebody or a group was connected to to all these murders as a whole. 
So those are the three people who have been tried to be tied to all of this huge group, you know, this huge killing spree from the late 1980s. Maybe the question on your mind right now is, so Ed, what do you think about all of that? Now that you've gone through and tried to be as objective as possible, even though I did show you some reasons maybe that that uh, Steve, Ron, and Fred uh, should not be considered, but I think I'm really trying to be as objective as I can. But what do you think overall about all of this, from these theories regarding the disappearances and the murders, and then these people who were suspected, or names that have come up? Here's what I've done to do that, to really uh, look at this. First, given that the most popular theory is rogue cop, killer cop, fake cop, something along those lines, I went to newspapers.com. And anybody, I would say, who wants to get into investigating any sort of crimes, whether it be disappearances or murders or plane hijackings or art theft or whatever else, you should have... A subscription there. It's not that expensive. It's good for a year. You should have one. Here's what I did. I went back and searched newspapers.com from between 1985 and 1990 looking for any stories on fake cops, somebody who got caught pulling people over but was not really a police officer, any rogue cops, any killer cops, anything like that. Any stories about how somebody got pulled over and then figured out that the that the the person was not really a police officer and then the person sped away and then, of course, went to the real police and filed a report. I looked all over newspapers.com in, this, in the entire state of Virginia not just the Newport News area or the Gloucester area, but the entire state of Virginia, Alexandria, Virginia Beach, wherever else, I could not find one story. Not one story that this was going on. Now, I'm not going to be so naive as to think that it didn't happen at least once during those five years, that somebody might have done that, uh, we know that goes on today. I think we're more aware of it because of the internet, maybe because of uh, people having f- cell phones and they can immediately call the police. Uh, they thought that they got put over by some uh, fake police officer or maybe even filming it, uh, fake police officer, something like that. We're much more aware of it today, but I'm, I'm inclined to believe it probably has gone on forever in the United States. Somebody faking something. But it wasn't so prominent that it got into the news. And having done this for six plus years and having newspapers.com subscription for that entire time and looking up a lot of disappearance stories and everything else, I spent a lot of time on there. uh, You start, you start to get a feel for these things and you, what you discover is When a particular crime or something going on in a community gets prominent enough, it will get reported on. Maybe not if it's something kind of strange, maybe not the first time, but maybe by like the fifth time, then it becomes news. If there were, if there was someone or a group 
going around the state of Virginia pulling people over or pulling up on people who were uh, parking or whatever else and giving tickets or getting them to do things. It just never made it into the papers, which I find a little amazing. Like I said, I'm not going to be so naive that it never happened in this time frame of 85 to 90, but it was rare. And because of that, I think that is enough. On that alone, that is enough to throw out this entire rogue cop, fake cop thing totally to the side. Because we have to think of it this way. Are we then saying that every time this fake cop or rogue police officer did this, and maybe it ended in end up in a murder, it didn't end up in a disappearance, but it might have ended up as something else, maybe a woman getting pulled over and being extorted to perform sex acts on a police officer. You're telling me that never made it into the news? Are you telling me that um, somebody didn't say no and like got away and, and alerted a real police officer or went right to the to the department headquarters, there are no stories about any of that. So I think this totally puts a huge hole in this rogue cop theory. That is enough. I, I realize a lot of people will say I'm crazy saying this, but I've done this enough to know now. Otherwise, I guess every time this happened, the person pulled it off perfectly. And the person who had this happen to him, a, a driver, man or woman, was so scared that the person never went to the local police department to report this. It just challenges my imagination. In fact, we know today the reason that, of course, some fake police officers are caught because they pull over real police officers, that happens. And then other times they get caught because a person who gets pulled over immediately realizes it, takes off, tracks down a real police officer, and, the other, and then the fake one gets caught. And then it makes it into the news. Most importantly, it makes it into the news. How do we know? Because we know about these things. You can Google the, this particular topic and find a lot of it in the 21st century. Going back to newspapers.com, and going from 85 to 90, you can't find anything. There is no proof, no evidence to believe that fake cops were pulling over people at that time or pulling up on people parking, whether they were lesbians or a 20-year-old with a 14-year-old or anything else. Uh, a couple out on a date, nothing. Also, if you need some more information regarding all of this and why I think that this, this theory is not good, People don't crack their windows for cops. Remember when I went back, the re one of those reasons that the police officers themselves started thinking this way was, well, the window was down a few inches, so we're thinking the police officers was, officer was walking up to the car, and that's why the window was down a little bit. Uh, that's not what you're supposed to do when you get pulled over. Now, why the police officers at the time didn't realize this, I don't know. But I went to a couple different sites, a lawyer's site, driver instructing site. What is the proper procedure when you get pulled over or you are somewhere in your car and a, and a police officer pulls up and puts the lights on? What's the proper procedure? You turn the car off or you put it in park or put it in neutral, put the emergency brake on. You shut the car off. 
you do not roll down the window a couple inches. You roll the window down the whole way. And then you put your hands on the steering wheel and you wait for instructions from the police officer. That's what you do. Now, you may say, well, you know, a couple of these people like Anna Maria and Daniel, they were doing something illegal. Maybe. They might not have known to do it that way. Maybe they were nervous. And given that what David and Robin were surely doing, he could have been nervous. Maybe. But we get to Kathleen Thomas and Rebecca. Kathleen Thomas, U.S. Navy Academy graduate. She surely would have known the proper procedure and would have followed the proper procedure. Right? So, instead, I have a different theory regarding the reason these windows were cracked open. It had nothing to do with police officers. Does it not make more sense? Maybe you know where I'm going to go with this. Have we not all gone parking in our lives? We're all, most of us are adults here. Have we not all gone parking in our lives? And no matter if you do it in Florida when it's 90 degrees, of course when it's 90 degrees, or if you're doing it in Pennsylvania when it's 20 degrees, what happens when you go somewhere and you start doing physical things inside a car? The inside of the car starts to get hot. And what do you do? You crack a window open. And everybody seems to be in agreement when it comes to Kathleen and Rebecca They were somewhere doing something romantic between the both of them. Is it not reasonable to think that they cracked that window open? David and Robin were certainly doing something physical, illegal in David's case. Is it not reasonable to think that they had the window cracked on the truck because to let the the heat out? You know what else also happens when you crack open the window? The windows don't get fogged up, Going, uh, thinking about the movie Titanic. Remember what happens. When you leave the windows up, it gets all steamy inside. You crack a window open, it gets cooler inside the car or truck, and the windows go back to being normal. You can see through them. Does that not make more sense, given what we know about these couples? And then we go to the final couple, uh, Daniel and Anna Marie, same thing. Window cracked. Could it not be that they were also, even though I know she was with this guy's, uh, in a relationship with this guy's brother, but still, we also have to consider something else. We know that David Knobling was a smoker. We know that Anna Maria and Daniel were into smoking marijuana. Is it then also not reasonable to think the windows were cracked because these people were smoking? Does that not make more sense than a police officer walking up and them cracking the window down when that's not even the proper procedure? Does this not make more sense? Now, why... Now, I've tried to find it. I Maybe I missed it. But I can't find this mentioned anywhere. I'm not saying it's not out there. There's only so much you could do. But I haven't seen this read anywhere. I, I haven't seen this written anywhere. I haven't heard it in any interview. Maybe I've missed it, but I take notes 
on interviews that I listen to on other shows. I try to take as copious notes as I can, especially when I'm doing a two-parter like this. And I can't figure out why back in the 1980s that this wasn't the first impression that came to police officers and investigators. They knew that these people were parking. They knew that these people were parked in places, and still they thought the reason the window was cracked was because a police, a police officer walked up. Whereas I know that probably a lot of police officers had gone parking back in the day, somewhere. And what you do is when it gets hot inside, you crack a window. That's my theory. And so all of that put together, the last 10 minutes, 15 minutes, is why I totally, totally reject the rogue cop, rogue cop, killer cop, fake cop theory. I think there are things, uh, the newspapers.com searches, the cracked windows, the improper procedure of believing that people just crack their windows down a little bit when they get pulled over or get stopped or whatever. And then on top of everything else, it seems if this was going on, these cops never fell because they never got caught, which also stretches my imagination. Did they not at least pull over somebody once and and the person, this fake cop or real cop got caught and went to jail? Doesn't seem that ever happened. Maybe because it never happened. So that is what I think about this entire theory. And that's... This is why I also reject getting specifically to uh, Keith and Sandra's disappearances that I totally, totally reject the idea that they were pulled over by any sort of police officer, fake or real, deputy park ranger, sheriff, head of the CIA. Nobody like that pulled them over that night. Okay, moving on. At, At this point, I'm going to reveal that I only have two principles when analyzing disappearances. But for me, I do have two principles that I have developed. Very rudimentary. I don't have a background in psychology or anything, but two principles I use in doing unfound. Number one, when it comes to humans, people don't want to get caught. I don't care if you're a jaywalker, a speeder, a rapist, a serial killer, uh, a student who's cheating on a college test, or anybody else. When you do things wrong, you don't want to get caught. And even when it comes to mass shooters like um, like we've had recently who have then shot themselves, they do not shoot themselves because they suddenly have regret about what they did. They shoot themselves because they don't want to pay for their crimes. Now, of course, if you're spiritual and religious, you believe they are ultimately going to suffer for what they did. If you have that kind of belief system. But here in the material world, they shoot themselves because they don't want to go to jail. They don't like to get caught. They just wanted to do and get away with it. The number two idea I have that I always keep in mind when covering disappearances, people are creatures of habit. I know it's a cliche, but people hate change. But this is, people are being creatures or habit. This is where superstition originates. Maybe we can think about pro athletes. If you really um, study pro athletes, they have rituals. They eat the same thing. They do this. They do that. On days of games, they 
they listen to the same music and everything else. In addition, like for baseball, it's a superstition to step on the foul line uh, when you are walking or on and off the field. People are creatures of habit, meaning we stick to what works. Why? Because we, as we know in life, it's so hard to find what works in anything, whether you are a musician or an engineer or a teacher or an athlete or a podcaster or anyone else. We do so many, we make so many mistakes in our lives that when we find something that works, whether it's something we're doing that's illegal or not, we stick to it. We will beat it into the ground. We might even think about dating. Men who have certain lines of meeting women, they find one that works, they will unshamelessly use it on every woman they see. Pro athletes, like I said, uh, ordering at a restaurant. People order the same food over and over and over because why? They can be assured that they're going to like it. Politicians, every time they run for office, it's the same thing over and over and over, especially when they're winning. We are creatures of habit. Likewise, and almost on the flip side, we get so set in our ways, we stick with what doesn't work. And that's where the saying of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is a definition of insanity. That's where that comes from. So when we find things that work, we stick to them. And sometimes, though, we get caught up in a a cycle where we continue to do the same thing that doesn't work and we continue to do it. What I'm saying here is we don't flip between what works and what doesn't work. We either find something that works and stick with it, or we we unfortunately stick with something that doesn't work. These are the only two items that come to my mind regarding human nature when when I look at disappearances. And I want you to keep that in mind as I continue. Here are some more opinions, and this goes right to the Colonial Parkway murders, as they have been defined since the 1980s, and as they are defined, for example, on Wikipedia. The Colonial Parkway murders as a title is a marketing term. It is not factual. It's just words put together. Yes, Kathleen and Rebecca's car was found on the Colonial Parkway. All fair, and certainly fair to say those are Colonial Parkway murders. If you want to believe that the Keith and Sandra ended up up on the Colonial Parkway. We can we'll go through that eventually, but at least his car was found on the Colonial Parkway, so I guess that makes sense too. Every other person or victim, I should call them victims that have been mentioned in this podcast should not be in that term. Should not be under that title. They were murdered in places nowhere near the Colonial Parkway. This is just a marketing term. I'm not blaming this on Blaine Pardo. I know that's the title of his book, but that title was long around a long time before he came along. Whoever came up with that title way back in the day did nobody any favors. It's great for books. It's great for TV shows. But it is horrible if you actually want to solve anything and you actually want to do any actual analysis. Because why? Because people who come along 
they think, well, you know, there's this title, I guess it must be true. And the confirmation bias starts, and I'm going to get into confirmation bias here in a moment. You have to remember, these murders, they're separated by a lot of miles. And so then I start thinking, well, then what is the standard? If two murders that people want to connect just because, how far are we going to go? 100 miles? 200 miles? Something like that. And maybe a good example of this would be, uh, or maybe I should say this. The truth is this, and this is another idea, although it doesn't have anything to do with human nature, it's just another way I look at disappearances. Geography and time are overrated when trying to connect crimes together. That's just a human perception. It's not factual. Just because two uh, disappearances happen close to each other does not mean that they are connected. Just because two disappearances are connected or are separated by a few days does not mean that they are connected. And even when you combine them, geography and time, that doesn't mean that they are connected either. I'll give you a perfect example of the city of Chicago in the United States. Uh, It's just about, right now, the murder capital of the United States. There are murders happening there every day within miles of each other, within minutes of each other. Most of them are not connected. Now, they might have the same motivation, being it might be gang activity or something like that, but the guy who murdered, uh, the the John Smith who murdered the Dan Brown over on Elm Street has nothing to do with the Harry Stone who is murdering, uh, come up with with the, uh, murdering the William Jones over on Main Street. Even though it's within the same, you know, close in time, close in geography. The only thing that should be relevant to connecting crimes, any sorts of crimes, are, fa- are factual information, scientific information, video, cell phone evidence, social media evidence, DNA, fingerprints, things like that. Crimes should not automatically be connected to each other because of geography and time. And that has been also a huge mistake with the, this, these crimes that happened in the late 80s in what we would just say, in, we'll just say in the state of Virginia. That's how spread out they are. We can't even say Colonial Parkway. We can't even say Gloucester. We can't even say Newport News. None of those terms would be accurate either. We just have to say in a certain large part of Virginia. What I'm saying is, and this is the reason this is all important, is because this is how we usually define things in our life. We have to be at a certain place at a certain time. Geography and time are two of the most common topics that are in our minds. We don't want to be late. We have to be somewhere. We have to be somewhere at a certain time. We have to go home. We're going on vacation. We're thinking about places. We're thinking about times. How long is it going to take? How many miles is it? All of these things. So it's very comfortable for our minds to think in those terms. It does it very well. Our minds do it 
spectacular. If anything that we as humans can do is that we can figure out directions and we can figure out times. And in fact, although we didn't invent time, we invented the clock. All, why do we re- invent the clock? So we know when to meet up with other people. And we could schedule meetings and everything else back in the day. Unfortunately, though, what this does, though, when we are so comfortable thinking about geography and time, we then default to it too often. And from there, I think uh, throughout then the rest of the 80s, when uh, the disappearances happened, Brian getting killed, Laurie getting killed, it was all a form of confirmation bias. They early on decided that it was a rogue cop. Oh, these must be a serial killer. Oh, we got something going on here. And they analyzed everything through that lens. And as I stated before with human nature, they kept doing the same thing over and over and again that was wrong, hoping for different results. That is the reason all of these crimes and these disappearances are unsolved now. The good part is all of this can be solved here in the 21st century. I I really believe that. But this kind of thinking that has continued regarding the entire idea of the Colonial Parkway murders, they need to be separated. This whole idea of the Colonial Parkway murders as an entire group must end. This confirmation bias is killing critical analysis. And this is where I tell you, because now we're going to get into, back to uh, Keith and Sandra's disappearances exclusively. This is where I tell you, who do I think killed Kathleen and Rebecca? A guy who knew them. Even if we were to rule out everything else, 80% of the crime that's committed in the United States is between people who know each other. And to believe that a guy just happened to be driving along the Colonial Parkway or somewhere and happened upon them and just happened to have a knife and everything else and killed them and it was a stranger on stranger crime, the odds of that happening are so, so low. I think the reason that they seem to have been compliant, to go back to that topic, is because they were being tied up by somebody who knew them. They really didn't realize in the moment that this person was going to do what he or they were going to do. That's why they were compliant, if you even believe that. I'm not sure that the evidence shows that, but if you believe that they were compliant, it's because they knew who was doing this. And we're much more likely to go along with something like that because in the moment, I mean, nobody gets up every day thinking they're going to be murdered, especially a U.S. Navy Academy, Naval Academy graduate and her girlfriend. So when they're confronted by somebody who knows them, they don't really think this is going to be the last day on the earth. And so they kind of go along with it, maybe also thinking, well, surely this is just going to end up with us being tied up or something, or this person really isn't serious, or uh, maybe we could talk him out of it or them out of it, and then it's too late. I also reject the idea regarding the evidence that they said, well, the reason Kathleen was hurt more is uh, because the person was really after her. I don't believe that at all. I think that the Kathleen in those particular murders was hurt more is because she put up the bigger fight. 
and whoever killed them was more angry at her for putting up a fight than at Rebecca. That's what I think. Moving on to David Nobling and uh, Robin Edwards. As I think I said in so many words when I covered their murders early on, earlier on in this episode, there's no doubt in my mind that they were both murdered by somebody connected, either this cousin found out that David had gone behind his back to take Robin out, or that David's pregnant ex-girlfriend found out what he was doing, and uh, a guy or a couple guys connected to her did this. That makes way more sense than anything else. And this goes along with popular thinking just regarding crime in general. Going back to 80% of the time when you have violent crime happen, it's between people who know each other. And they killed both of them because what were they going to do? They really wanted to probably just kill David. What are they going to do? Leave Robin there to identify them later? And this is also a situation just like Robin or just like Rebecca and Kathleen's where these two went along with their killer or killers because they really didn't think it was going to happen. The reason they were quote-unquote compliant is because at least David really didn't think it was going to happen because he knew the, the shooter. Oh, come on, man. You're really not going to do this. And they're walking. You're really not going to do this. Come on. you Because know. here's what I think I know. That was not the first time that David Nobling cheated on his pregnant girlfriend. Pretty sure. I don't have any evidence of that, but what are the odds that the very first time he cheats on her, he gets murdered? Think about it. I think the pregnant girlfriend, or at least some people in her family, knew what he was doing. Doesn't that make more sense than all this stuff about drugs and road cops and everything else? I think it does. Now, the last one uh, regarding uh, Daniel Phelps, or I I should say um, Daniel Lauer and Anna Marie Phelps, Anna Maria Phelps, that's a little tougher to put my finger on it, but I'm inclined to believe they were there to buy drugs. I think that they knew that that area was a place where you could do that, meaning they had been there before. They were comfortable with that area, and given that the money was missing, this was all about a robbery. This had nothing to do with road cops or anything else. This was a drug deal gone bad. And it very well could be that it was somebody connected to them. Once again, going back to that 80% figure, it makes all the sense in the world. This could have been something that they had, somebody who'd done deals with them before. And this time, Daniel gets out that wad of money, that 800 bucks, and that's just too much to pass up. And that makes a, that makes a lot more sense than police at the time thinking, oh, we're being taunted by uh, this roach clip on the window. I mean, that's crazy. It's just confirmation bias, buying too much into the hypes of serial killers and, and everything else. Even going back to the Zodiac Killer, which I think everybody knows, that guy had written letters to the, uh, the news and all of that. I think there's only one letter that could only ever be connected to the Zodiac Killer that was written to that San Francisco newspaper. And that was one with the the little cut of clothing from that murdered taxi driver. That's it. 
All those others could have been done by anybody. Taunting by killers of police is not totally a fiction, but it's mainly relegated to Hollywood movies. It happens in real life once in a while. Of course, Dennis BTK, Dennis Rader did it. But overall, it is rare. So I keep wondering, why do police, like in that situation, default to the rare thing instead of the more common idea that maybe that roach clip was hanging there for some totally different reason that makes a lot more sense than being taunted? I don't know. Then, of course, for uh, Brian Pettinger, he was certainly murdered by Wayne Mack. And then uh, Laurie, she was certainly murdered by her boyfriend. So that brings us back to where we all got started last week, the disappearances of Keith and Sandra. To start this out, I'm going to answer that question that I posed to all of you last week. What is the difference between Sandra and Keith and all of those other people whose either cars or they themselves were last, the cars were found near bodies of water, or the missing people were seen near bodies of water. You know what the difference between uh, Keith and Sandra, what makes them unique from all of those other people or their cars? Is all of those other people had a lot of bad things going on in their lives. Whether it had to do with relationship issues, horrible relationship issues, addictions, mental health issues, problems with family, problems with money, all of them. I'm not going to read the list again. You can go back to part one and go through that list again. Either one of those problems or multiple problems, every one of them, depression issues, something like that, had been diagnosed with some sort of medical issue, whereas with Keith and Sandra, none of that. No money problems, no education problems, no mental health issues, no addictions, nothing. In fact, it's safe to say for all you parents out there, I think you would have been very proud to have Keith or Sandra as a child. And that the reason I brought that up is that that figures hugely into the rest of the analysis that I'm going to do here. So moving on. So what did I do to look at Keith and Sandra's disappearances? Well, as I stated before, went to newspapers.com, looked up, saw, are there any road cops at the time? Anything like that going on? Nothing. I looked to see if how prevalent violent, violence was on the Christopher Newport College campus at the time. There's certainly things that went on, but certainly nothing that falls into the vein of Keith and Sandra going missing. And in fact, you should know, I looked it up on NamUs. The Keith and Sandra are the only two missing people in that area from the 1980s. So there was not a rash set of disappearances going on there at the time that somehow missed the whole Colonial Parkway murder phenomenon. Now, usually when I find something like that, where I find a disappearance that just is just like out of nowhere... I usually think that it has everything to do with the people and nothing to do with anything else. That's usually what I default to. But here Keith and Sandra were living these very good lives and they went missing. 
and there are no other missing people like them in Virginia for the entirety of the 1980s. We have other disappearances, but certainly the demographics of those other people are different. So then after all that, looking into trying to get an idea of what was going on in Virginia at the time, crimes at the time, any, um, any disappearances that were solved, couldn't find anything like that, couldn't find any rogue cops, nothing, I've already talked about that. I then, after that, and that took some time, of course I still have the Friday episodes to still do every week. I then did this. You have to remember something when it comes to um, doing polling and things. We have a country in the, uh, the United States has 330 million people in it. Despite that huge number of people, if you randomly poll 200 adults, you can pretty much figure out who the next president is going to be. Even though there's going to be 80 million votes on one side, side, 80 million votes on the other, 160 million voting adults, all you have to do is randomly poll 200 of them to figure out who the next president is going to be with, with a high degree of accuracy. Keep that in mind. So what I did was, now that 200 number is important because we've covered 275 disappearances on Unfound. And even the investigators, even though I think they got a lot wrong, what they didn't get wrong is they've all, they all continued to believe that the car was staged. And this isn't me talking, that's them talking, although I believe it as well, but they're the ones who think that the car was staged. Nobody believes, seems to believe that Keith and Sandra went, went up there. Not their families, not their friends, nobody. So meaning, what does this mean when we talk about staging? Staging means that vehicles or other things were put in a place to mislead investigators. That's why things are staged. To make things look like, it, 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 the uh, disappearance to look like one thing when it's really something else. So what did I do? Going back to that polling, I went back to all 275 disappearances that we've covered on and found, and I went through every one of them. And I picked out the ones that I believe in which staging certainly occurred. Certainly occurred. And I came up with 32 so it's 32 into 275. That's like one eighth. One eighth of the disappearances that we cover on and found, staging is a part of the disappearance. 32. But just to make sure that I wasn't totally crazy, I uh, asked a listener. Her name is Kathy. She is a former IRS agent, investigative agent. So she's used to looking at information and finding flaws and everything else. She's spectacular, by the way. I call her Unfounds Historian because she's so good at recalling disappearances and uh, you know technical details on the disappearances that we've covered. I had her do the same thing. I did not tell her what my number was. I told her, could you please go through all the disappearances and you tell me how many you think in wh- how many you think have staging involved. Remember, my number was 32 out of 275. Her number was 35 out of 275. So out of 275 disappearances, we were only off by three disappearances. That's it. 
that's it. So for her, I think, uh, for her, 35, um, out of 275 is like almost 13%. For me, I think it's like 11 and a half percent. So we are within a percentage and a half point of each other. And I'm going to read the list of at least my list. So you can, can go back and check these disappearances for yourself and see what you think. Kelly Rothwell, Donnie Smatlack, Robin Abrams, Jeff Nichols, Brandy Wells, Pamela Golden, Patsy Action, Jeremy Burt, Brian Sullivan, Mandy Stokes, Rebecca Henderson, Nicholas Masucci, Renee Yergain, Zoe Campos, Ellen Sloan, Megan Lancaster, Jack Hemby, Dorian Myers, Julie C., Christina Branham, and Christopher Mittendorf. There's a, uh, a disappearance with two people involved. Andy Chapman, Tyler North, Bradley Brooks, Jake Lachalet, Julie Angelet, not a car, but a purse in a hotel. Rachel Sierks, Paul Sanders, Dub and Chance Wackerhagen, Douglas Crawford, Rhonda Smith, Mary Watkins, Jackie Cooper. I urge you, if you're not familiar with those disappearances, please go back, listen to those episodes, and tell me what you think. Do you think that they were, those cars were staged in those disappearances? Or items like in Julie Angelais? So 32. And Kathy did her list. Like I said, it came out to 35. Most of our lists are the same. She is, in fact, really, you could say, hers is missing a couple of mine. I'm, mine is missing a couple of hers. But on like 28 of the disappearances or something like that, we agree. And then we, it gets a little more subjective maybe in a few. But she came up with a total of 35 out of 275. I came out of a number, uh, I came up with a number 32 out of 75. Now, the advantage we have is that some of these actual disappearances I've just named were solved. And in fact, those vehicles were staged. Uh, an example of that was Zoe Campos. Carlos Rodriguez staged her car. In fact, he was driving around her car for a few days, and then somebody discovered that, and he abandoned the car in an apartment complex. He staged her car in that apartment complex. He was eventually caught and tried and convicted for Zoe's murder. In addition, Tyler North, his vehicle was eventually found burned. He had been lured uh, to a park, and his ex-wife and her boyfriend killed him. So even within this list, well, there is proof because these disappearances have been solved or murders have been solved. We know that those cars were staged. Thus lending more credibility, a lot, I think a lot of good credibility, great credibility, to the rest of the list, even though those disappearances are unsolved. So I, what I did next, I did it, and then I asked Kathy to do it. I went through that list of that 32, and I tried to figure out in how many of them did I believe that a person who knew the missing person put the car wherever it ended up or in the case of Julie Angelae, her purse. How many of those staged disappearances was the staging done by somebody who knew the missing person very well? I had Kathy do the same thing. I came up with a number of 31 out of 32. The only one I think in my list that is a big question mark is Patsy Action, which coincidentally is a disappearance from right here in the Clearwater uh, Florida area. I, I, I just, it's very possible that she was killed by a stranger. I'm not going to go into all the details. It's very possible. She was certainly murdered because the inside side of her car was covered with blood. Very sad. 
but her body is still missing over 40 years later. I'm open to the idea that she was at that hotel and just ran into the wrong person. But in every one of those, surely somebody who knew the missing person put that car or purse where it ended up being found. 31 out of 32, which is a percentage rate of 96%. Kathy did the same thing. She didn't know what my number was. She worked independently. She came up with her disappearances 32 out of 35. So in 32 of her disappearances, she believed that the car or purse was staged by someone who knew the missing person. That percentage is 91%. And dare I say it, in a lot of these, there is proof that somebody uh, who knew the person staged it, but there's just not enough proof to convict that person of everything or anything because, as we know, DAs don't like to start murder trials without bodies. But I think if you go back and at least go through my list, I'm not going to read off Kathy's list, but my list, you go back and look at these disappearances, you're going to see why I think the way that I do. So overall, what are we saying? Going back to that idea of polling, taking a sample of disappearances or sample of people and being able to determine the president, the next president of the United States. Using that same criteria for disappearances, what this all means is that when we have a disappearance in which we believed evidence was staged, it doesn't matter if it was a car, a purse, a motorcycle, a boat, clothes, anything. When there is a good reason to believe that evidence was staged, there is between a 91 and 96% chance that that, in, that was staging was done by somebody who knew the missing person. 91 to 96%. And so what does that mean for, I think you already know what that means for Keith and Sandra. Given the random sample of disappearances that we cover on Unfound, and it is as random as you're ever going to find anywhere, I do not try to cover particular kinds of disappearances. The only thing I would say is I avoid, kind of trying to avoid, uh, I try to avoid child disappearances, even though we've covered a ton of those too. But when it comes to adults, we'll cover the disappearance of anybody, meaning that it's random. And in that random sample of 275 overall disappearances, they're between, it's going to be between uh, 11.5% and 13% of all disappearances are staged. And then of that, 91 to 96% of those are staged by people who knew the missing person or persons. So getting, I'm going to say it again. So what that means for Keith and Sandra is that there is between a 91 and 96% chance. See, we still have that 4%, 4 to 9% that it wasn't, but a 91 to 96% chance that Keith's vehicle was staged on the Colonial Parkway by somebody who knew at least one of them well. That's what the stats say. I do not come to this microphone or the work I do with preconceived notions. I look at the work we've done. 
I listen to what other people have said. I listen to, to, to the family members that I interview extensively before they ever appear on, on this podcast. It's from all of that that I gain my knowledge, not because I just want to think, you know, magically that certain things are true. But this is how I've come to the determination that certainly Keith's car was staged there by somebody who knew him very well or who knew Sandra very well or who knew both of them very well. But here's the kicker. You don't, even though that's what I did all of that and I think it's very helpful to myself and to all of you, there was something else that hit me after I did all of that work and Kathy did all of that work that came to mind. There's actually a factual giveaway that shows this that has nothing to do with how you look at human nature or stats or anything else. What is it? There is a giveaway that the car was staged by someone who knew Sandra and Keith at least decently well. What is that? The only kind of person who would have thought it logical to put the car where it was and make it look like the two went skinny dipping is a person who knew Keith and Sandra were on a date. And there is no way a stranger would have known that. And there is no way a stranger would have been on the spur, would have on the spur of the moment upon finding out that they were on a date during the course of the abductions would have thought to make it look like they went skinny dipping. Really, would a stranger even care or even ask? Could not have Keith and Sandra have been brother and sister if there was some sort of abduction, they got pulled over by a road cop and the cop walks up to their car? Could they have not have been brother and sister? I mean, they kind of, they're both the same race, maybe even the same ethnicity. You put them together, I guess it's not crazy to think that they might have been brother and sister or maybe co-workers or just platonic friends or maybe... Keith is married to somebody else, Sandra is married to someone else, and they just happen to be in the car together and would have no reason to go skinny dipping. Is that not possible, too, for that stranger who was a killer who's walking up to their car to think that instead of thinking that they are on the date or on a date? Whoever put the car there knew they were on a date because that's the only way skinny dipping makes sense despite the water being cold. In addition, I think this is also very important, and this comes from what Terry, Chris, and Joyce said, and it also comes from my interviews with the two witnesses. In addition, and importantly, any witness at the party would not have known the two were on a date together. Why? Because Keith and Sandra did not spend any time together at the party. What I'm saying is it couldn't have even been someone randomly who encountered Sandra and Keith there because, as you heard, they spent no time together at the party. So there would have been no reason for somebody who came into the party and saw Keith, saw Sandra, would, would have known that they were on a date unless this person had known beforehand. You couldn't observe them randomly from afar and know that they were on a date even when they were at the party. This is very important. 
Having said all that, I want you to know the truth. This is the, you're just going to have to believe me. I have entertained all theories regarding their disappearances. Fake cops, real cops. Uh, they drove to that spot and were taken by strangers, even by park rangers. Uh, they went up there and just kind of completely lost their minds and really did jump into the water. Uh, I even, to be honest, and, and no offense, of course, to Keith's family, but I entertained the idea, could it be that Keith harmed Sandra for some reason after they left the party and then it somehow turned into a murder-suicide? I have seriously considered everything except UFOs. But the facts and the huge sample of disappearances we've studied on Unfound only support one conclusion. Keith and Sandra were murdered by someone or a group who knew them who planned it out. This person or group did not leave Keith and Sandra behind to be found easily. Remember going back to part one of this, uh, the Colonial Parkway disappearances, where I talked about the reason that people, killers, get rid of bodies. The person or group did not leave Keith and Sandra behind to be found easily because in doing so, the killer or killers would reveal themselves due to the location that the murders happened. That is the reason that the car and Keith and Sandra were not left behind to be found somewhere else. Because leaving it wherever they were and wherever that car was would have revealed the, uh, who it was. And we have to remember, these are, the day, these are the days before DNA. The car was put there by someone who knew the two. I will even go as far as to say I think this all started because there's the big question, well then, if that's the case, that they really did get stopped on the way home, how could somebody have stopped them? They leave and uh, would somebody do get out ahead of them or, or something and then pull them over? No. I think the answer is much simpler than that. It is so much simpler and it's, it's in, in front of everybody's eyes if they want to see it. I will go even as far as to say I think this all started as Sandra and Keith giving someone a ride home. This is the only way the two could have been caught before they got, got caught and stopped before they got to Sandra's house. The only way that could have happened is if the killer or killers were already in the car. I will go even further. Given that we know that the car wasn't wiped down, why do we know that? Because we know years later that... Keith's brother was called in because he got this DUI. His fingers got put in the system. They called him in. Hey, your car, your fingerprints were found in your brother's car way back in 1988. What does that tell us? It tells us that the car wasn't wiped down. So whoever did this didn't bother to wipe it down. Now, maybe they were wearing gloves and weren't worried about that. It's a possibility. But it's April it's not January. It's April in Virginia, not January. I don't think that's glove-wearing weather by the time April gets around in uh, Virginia. Maybe if it was Alaska. My belief is that the killer or killer's fingerprints, because I believe that they were given a ride home, were collected at the time. And although I can't say whether the person was actually interrogated or not, my belief is the person's alibi once their fingerprints were identified, if they were, I believe this person's alibi for the disappearances of Sandra and Keith 
are that, oh yeah, uh, they gave me a ride home and I got dropped off and I never saw them again. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, my fingerprints are in the car because they gave me a ride home. And this passed with police for all the reasons that I've already described. The police, by the time Keith and Sandra had gone missing, were already on the serial killer idea. They were already on the idea that it was a rogue cop. So what does that mean? Flimsy alibis would pass muster. And this also passed because, as I've learned in doing disappearances, it is amazing how police ignore suspects right in front of their faces. They did that with Carlos Rodriguez. Carlos Rodriguez got away with the story with Zoe Campos. Oh, yeah, uh, she was at my place, and then she left to go get weed, and she never came back. That flew for five years. Despite there being a new slab of concrete in Carlos's backyard that the police ignored. So that's my theory. This, this goes along with everything uh, that we've covered on Unfound to this point, 275 disappearances in, 350 episodes or something like that. It goes along with what we understand about crime in the United States where 80% of the time it is uh, when violent crimes are committed, they are between people who know each other. It also goes along with the idea that we know that fake cops pulling people over and killing them is, is as rare as rare can be. It along, also goes along with the idea that it's, I think it's obvious that all of these other murders stand alone and that they were all done by people who knew those people too. So it only makes sense then that Keith and Sandra, were, their disappearances were caused by somebody who knew them. And the reason the car was put up there is because it had been in the paper. I've seen the stories on newspapers.com that the police were already looking for a serial killer. And so what better way to continue the, this, this false thinking of the police than just to put the car up there and allow the police to continue on the wrong path. That's why the car was put there. And yes, I do think that going back to compliancy, uh, or compliancy, compliance, this is also the reason that Keith and Sandra's clothes have no damage on them. They weren't torn, there were no bullet holes in them, no DNA, nothing else. It's because they did not realize the mess that they were in until it was too late. They got caught up in something, somebody convinced them to do something, they were compliant because they knew the person, and not realizing what this person really, really had planned. So where to go from here? Here's what I would say. I would like to know how many different sets of fingerprints were found in Keith's car back in 1988. Obviously, they took the fingerprints of, in the car because, as I stated just a few moments ago, Keith's brother was hauled in years and years later because of a DUI and was questioned. We know they took fingerprints, they got all the fingerprints as, maybe as, most, as much as they could from the interior of that car. I would like to know how many sets of fingerprints they found and how many have never been identified. 
And if they have identified some of the fingerprints besides Keith's brother, Keith, Sandra, anybody else in Keith's family, of course, nobody in Sandra's family, fingerprints should be in the car. Maybe they might find uh, fingerprints of the previous owner of the car, but anybody other than that, all of us would love to really know about that. That's where this needs to go. Let's talk about those fingerprints. Let's talk about the ones that haven't been identified yet, or let's talk about the ones that have been identified that might just seem a little strange. But maybe these people or that person was ruled out because that person had an alibi that passed at the time. But maybe here in 2022 going into 2023, maybe that alibi just doesn't seem as solid now given all the coverage that has been done over the past two episodes. And that ends part 2B, concluding Unfound's coverage of the Colonial Parkway disappearances. I'll leave the rest of the theorizing up to you. And that's the program. Right now, while you are in your podcast platform, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, wherever, give Unfound a five-star review, a thumbs up, whatever that platform allows. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've just finished this episode of Unfound.